everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh. And of course, I am joined remotely by Dr. Scott. Hey, folks, welcome back. Thanks so much for tuning in again. So today we are going to jump right into our episode because we have a guest, um, a guest that is going to add a lot of depth and just the right amount of dry cop humor, I'm sure, to you know, align with me a little bit on this one, because <laughs> this is going to be very law enforcement centric, but very much um, psychology related as well. But today we're going to be talking about crisis negotiations, and I would like to welcome my friend Harry Drucker to LA Not So Confidential. Thanks for being here, Harry. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Sure. We are remotely so glad. here. Yeah, <laughs> remotely. Um, but thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. We know that your experience, which we're going to hear all about, is really going to add to what we have to all talk about today. Um, so, um, you know, we always with our guests kind of talk about like how we even stumbled upon each other. And Harry and I happen to be part of the same organization that participates in training on crisis negotiations here in Southern California. And um, I'm sure we've been at several of these trainings together before, but just so happens that our last one, um, we ended up finally meeting uh, because of a mutual friend. I guess we should say hi to Jeff because he listens and he would be upset if we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, hey, Jeff. Um, But we all went to lunch together and just, you know, started chatting in our little group. And um, Harry and I talked about podcasting a little bit. So, Uh, Harry has 32 years on as a law enforcement officer here in Southern California, and he will be retiring in a matter of days. So maybe towards the end, we can figure out what the heck you're going to do after that. So isn't this the point (laughs) at which like something huge happens, like in every cop movie, one of the cops is always like just like a week away from retirement and then something huge happens. Is that going to happen well, here? I mean, look at what we're uh, going through right now. I was, um, a lot of people in, in my position will, um, uh, in, you know, take some time off a little bit right before retirement and, and burn some time. I've got a whole bunch of uh, excess vacation and other time. And, and um, I, I do a lot of like, like Shiloh and, and probably yourself, Scott, uh, I go around the country and I do a lot of training and I'm constantly on the road and I haven't been able to do that. So uh, my, uh, crew that I work with has said, we, you're in the office more this past month than you've been in the past <laughs> year. So this is the big, uh, the COVID is, is the big thing that's happened. That's, that's right before retirement. And um, I think we're all a little bit anxious about the whole thing, but uh, I have been busier than I would have expected uh, for something like this. So yeah, that's the big thing that's happening. Yeah, definitely. Let's hope that's all it is. Scott. Yeah, please. You know, yeah, yeah. Him, you know. But if it happens, you know, you can write a script about it and then sell that to Hollywood and they'll turn it into shit like all these other movies we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Right. Um, But Harry also is a two-time Emmy Award winner um, for a couple of commercials that you produced. Is that correct? Uh, Yeah, public service announcements. So one was uh, on surviving an active shooter, which uh, it's a shame that we had to make that that film. Uh, uh, it's a it's a short film, public service announcement or public service training film, and uh, another one on uh, safe gun storage. Uh, and uh, I didn't even know they they had 
uh, Emmys for that, but Tuck News uh, gets awards for the best broadcast and sports broadcast and things like that. So we uh, we won the public service announcement category for our gun safety PSA and uh, independent programming for uh, surviving an active shooter. And I'm extraordinarily proud of my uh, the people that I work with because uh, I was just a small part of it. And um, uh, they are the, the brains behind the operation. I just, uh, uh, I tell people that if you, uh, if you ever have seen uh, with some confusion as I have uh, Olympic curling, uh, I'm the one with the broom. I just, I just, <laughs> that's really get important. Things out of the way. So, uh, so they can do their great work and, um, and uh, they do great work. So Harry, are those, uh, are those two pieces on Vimeo or YouTube, any place that we could link to on our site so that our listeners can see what you've produced? Yes. Well, um, if uh, the, uh, you could probably put a link in there, which will reveal what agency I work with, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll give you those oh. links. Uh, the film, the, the active shooter one, surviving an active shooter. And at the time that we uh, produced it, there were very few of those uh, type of uh, trainings for the public available. Now there's hundreds of them. So ours is a little hard to find. Um, but uh, we, we will link to them. And, and um, we just want, if, if one person survives an incident based on something that they've seen here, it's, it's all worth it. Um, right. But it is a shame that we had to make uh, both of those because they were inspired by tragedy. Right, right. Yeah, well, it's it's important work, and they're they're really good. I got to see um, a couple of them. So, um, and then you have also been on another podcast, which is pretty LA centric, is uh, Minor Adventures with Topher Grace. What was that experience like? It's pretty funny. That was yeah, it was a lot of fun, and and um, as with a lot of podcasts, there was a little bit of uh, coordination and, and pre interviews and. Um, my concern was it's a comedic podcast and, and it was a lot of fun. I just wanted to make sure that they were um, uh, at least allowing a little bit of a little bit of instruction as they do with all their adventures that they go through. And, and um, uh, they uh, took most of my suggestions and not others, but uh, was with Thomas Middleditch, who was a, a, an awesome improviser. Uh, and they each took turns playing suspects and, and uh, it was very comedic, but uh, they allowed me to kind of act as coach and talk them through the negotiation, which of course was compressed for time and, and uh, uh, increased in hilarity, but uh, <laughs> to my expense at, at uh, a couple of uh, yes. parts. But uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my uh, my experience. I we I was able to be on the first episode of the Ron Swan, uh, not Ron Swanson, Ron Burgundy podcast. Oh, really? Where where Will Ferrell was in character, but they wanted a forensic psychologist to come, and it was. I told them, I was like, look, I'll do it, but uh, there's no way I'm not going to bust up. You know, I just, I'm not going to be able to hold it together. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, no, that's fine. Oh, do they totally want fine. you to be straight? Like, no, no, no. No, 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 they were, no, they were like, whatever happens, happens. It was, it was a pretty great experience. But yeah, he <laughs> stayed in character the entire time. It was funny. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was pretty brilliant. Harry, so can you tell us about your career and how it's led up to negotiation, but also what other assignments have you worked and how did how did these 32 years go? Well, they went way too fast at this point. I don't uh, remember what happened, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I came on as a, uh, a law enforcement officer in the late 80s. Uh, and um, I, I like to mention that it's it was pre-Rodney King because uh, there was a big shift in just how, law enforcement in general. Um, but uh, 
Uh, I work for an agency where you spend your first couple of years uh, working uh, in a jail, and uh, which I did, and and um, it was a, a major education uh, for me. But but also it kind of started uh, forming the skills and and the experience that led me to negotiation. That's just talking to people, uh, and uh, kind of that's always been my, you know, as I look back on my career, I've always preferred because I didn't have the skill. Uh, to get physical with people. I was never into martial arts or anything like that. And, and uh, I was mediocre with my, with my firearm. So um, uh, I had to develop that, that uh, verbal skill. And, and I, I've heard several interviews with comedians that talk about they were beat up or they were bullied in school and said that's where their sense of humor came from as kind of a defense mechanism. And uh, whether that's the case with me or if it was because I wasn't very good uh, with those physical skills, um, there was kind of a common thread even before I became a, uh, a negotiator, um, but it worked uh, uh, patrol assignments. Uh, I had a couple of uh, detective uh, related assignments and, and with, with the agency I worked for and, and probably 98% or 99% of, of police agencies around the country, negotiations is a collateral assignment. So I started uh, uh, doing that in, in 1996. Uh, while I was uh, uh, working as a detective, and uh, I was kind of a, an odd kind of detective because I, I helped. Uh, it was more administrative, and if our department was being sued, uh, I would uh, do a backup investigation with the attorneys to try and help a defense or, or determine if we were liable and if we had to uh, to settle the cases. But I started negotiating uh, negotiating at that point. Um, but my first negotiation was prior to going to the training. I was a field uh, officer and um, had several incidents where, and, and, you know, let me back up by, by saying that train negotiation doesn't, uh, isn't anything super special. Uh, law enforcement officers around uh, and first responders uh, all around the world do this, this type of thing. Uh, the communication skills, the active listening uh, the uh, person with the training and negotiation maybe has a little more patience, uh, a little more experience, uh, and some specialized training. But but this is something that that first responders do all the time. And uh, my first negotiation, the negotiation team responded, and as I would now as a team leader, they just evaluate how is that officer doing, and do we really even need to replace them or can they are they doing a good job and can we give them a little bit of help along the way a little coaching which is what happened in my my first negotiation but uh loved uh just the field and and the um uh, the skill set of of negotiations and just have have been on ever since uh continuing uh, i'm a team leader now so i don't negotiate as much um but uh, uh i'm currently a sergeant with my my agency and um uh, working with that, the uh, training division, doing the, the uh, training films, but still subject to call. In fact, I got a, uh, had a call at, at 5.30 this morning. Turned out not to be uh, an actual call out, but uh, even with uh, the COVID situation, we continue to get call outs. I think I've had three in the past uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, it's kind of picked up at uh, my agency as well. It's definitely not slowing down with people. Um locked in their homes with their family members and not, drinking not a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a, it, it can be a very tense um, 
situation for a lot of people rather than just kind of this lay at home and watch Netflix feel that, you know, lots of other people think it is right now. So watching all the 14 documentaries that you've pointed me toward with the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Scott, I guess that kind of leaves you and I to maybe talk about um, our experience or training when it comes to negotiations. Do you want to start? Yeah, uh, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording and, and Shiloh, you and I have talked about this in previous episodes that when I moved to the position I'm currently in about four years ago, I got this fantastic opportunity to go to uh, the FBI training on uh, hostage negotiation, crisis negotiation uh, for a week. It was a, a week-long immersive experience, you know, culminating in uh, the use of uh, really well-trained actors in four or five different scenarios. And I don't think I've ever, with the exception of being on a, an amazing roller coaster, I've never had like that level of exhilaration in a, a, a false scenario. Like, you, you know, it's not real, but it feels very real. They've really set the whole thing up and you're taught, you know, you're taught this set of skills. And as I think, Harry was saying is everybody has uh, you can train anybody to do it, but that doesn't mean everybody can do it the same way. And I certainly came away from it thinking this is a really perishable skill. Like if I don't practice this every day, I would never feel confident. I mean, I talk people down in psychiatric settings all the time and maybe there's some sort of parallel there, but it was one of those where, I was able to like kind of uh, deflate my ego a good bit and walk out going, man, these, these people really know what they're doing. And I would, I would love to become more facile at it, but I think you really have to stay on top of it. And I hope Harry will be able to circle around a little bit later and tell us how do you keep your edge? I would be interested in hearing your appointment on that. <clears throat> Shiloh, what about you? Um, so I did CNT school when I started about, a little less than three years ago, I went through LAPD's crisis negotiation school with their version of what you went to at the FBI. Um, same, you know, I, I felt like, oh my God, this, this is going to be my thing because it is such a mix of law enforcement and psychology. And I thought I really need to know more about this. I want to do some deep dives and and be really good at this because with my agency, I was going to be a part of the crisis negotiation team, um, which I am, which I have been now as a consulting psychologist, we're never on the phone with folks and doing any negotiating, but we're part of the team actively consulting in the moment. So you, you have your primary negotiator, secondary negotiator, and then your psychologist. Um, I am praying for that time where they're like running out of everybody or they're like, we need a female. <laughs> I can get on the phone. <laughs> I'm going to make it happen before my career ends. Um, but I also feel the same as you, Scott, that, you know, this has to be something that's practiced to get good at it. And I, I see the advantage to keeping a small rotation of negotiators so that they get a lot of experience and exposure to it. I mean, it can only work in their favor. Um, but aside from that, you know, I did work with one of my supervisors right when I came on to really sort of dive into the research a little bit more. And we ended up um, presenting at a national chiefs conference on psychology tradecraft that is used in uh, crisis negotiations. 
And then just at the beginning of this year, I got a, a paper published also with my supervisor as a co-author looking at the ethics of the psychologist working in crisis negotiations. So any, any you know, training or anything like that that I can soak up on this issue, um, I still feel like I'm in my infancy with it, but I had the opportunity to take the topic that we were working on for our Stockholm Syndrome episode and morph that into a training and I ended up teaching that at the FBI's crisis negotiation school at the end of last year and then doing that presentation a couple other places. So I love it. I, I feel like um, I have a, I'm very grateful for a lot of the opportunities that I have to kind of dive into it research wise and psych wise. And it's a blast. It's like it, it is getting that phone call in the middle of the night sucks. Um, but once you're there, it's kind of like the gym. Once you're there, it's great. And you definitely don't regret it afterwards. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing both of your opinions on on uh, the psychologist as a uh, as a negotiator. Why law enforcement generally doesn't do it? Um, I know of one psychologist in uh, in Texas that uh, Dr. Andy Young, who uh, does negotiate uh, regularly with uh, with their uh, police department there, but. Um, for, for those, for the untrained, uh, why don't law enforcement uh, use psychologists as negotiators? And, and um, what do you think about that? That's a great question. You know, I don't know that I've ever even sort of um, asked that. I think just in, in my three years of experience, it, like a lot of things in law enforcement, uh, that's just the way it's always been. Um, and I haven't really you know, push back too much on that just because, you know, I'm kind of getting my feet wet and, and learning my role. Um, we're given the same exact training. So when push comes to shove, I actually have heard of a couple of situations in which are some of uh, two of our psychologists have done some sort of negotiation. Um, but I, I don't know, you know, I, whether or not it's sort of stepping on toes and we're just seen as a consultant. Um, I know for my agency, it's integrated to where the negotiators are also part of the SWAT team and our operators, so they're cross-trained, So, which I love. I love that model. It works out really well for a lot of different reasons, but I don't know if that has a piece of it, too, where we are also a couple more steps removed because we're not SWAT operators and obviously not law enforcement officers. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Scott? Yeah, I mean the the worst case scenario in a situation utilizing a licensed psychologist in a situation like that, you know, I immediately I went of course because I'm a catastrophizer. So I immediately thought, okay, what if I was in a situation where uh, it was a jumper over the 101 freeway? You know, the 101 freeway which cuts directly through Los Angeles has many overpasses that provide ample opportunity for people to utilize them if they want to self harm. Or, but um, say that is somebody who is already within my mental health agency's database, accessing that person's mental health record for purposes of, of de-escalating a situation, but then exposing everyone in the area around what would be protected information could potentially be li um, a liability. 
I, I, but I think I'm taking, you know, we're also talking about something in, a, in extreme emergency situations, pretty much all of those things can and should uh, take a, a back seat, but I can see where it might be problematic. And also I, 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 I can't help but think that you guys in law enforcement that are so highly trained at this, it just becomes second nature to you and you're flipping into it. I think it might be harder for a mental health clinician who has, who's being pulled in a different direction. At least that was my, my experience in the training as I kept, one of the instructors kept saying, you got, you're doing this right and this right and this right, but you're not his therapist. Stop. Don't make it a therapy session. And that was difficult for me to, to not fall into that rut. But I think the, you know, there's certainly some, some insights and skills and, and perspectives that a, you know, a trained mental health professional can, can add to a scenario like that. You know, if you go back into uh, how, you know, there's always an evolution of, of, of how we, uh, we learn from our mistakes and things like that. But they used to train law enforcement in negotiator school about specific uh, diagnosis, personality disorders, and this is what an antisocial sounds like and, and looks like and, and borderline and all that stuff. And, and what, uh, we're not trained psychologists, um, uh, although sometimes we're thrust into that position of, of having to do a little bit of that work in the field. Um, and I think they've changed uh, the training uh, to not really worry too much about the stuff that we don't know enough about, but uh, about the behavior. What are we dealing with right now? Uh, this is a person in crisis. How are they acting right now? And that's why we have we partner with uh, our mental health department and our, and our clinicians to step in and say, this is what I think I'm hearing. Uh, this is the type of approach that I think will be effective. And then you, you go with that. But um, that's, you know, that's something I think is, is great, especially. And in, in fact, if, if they have de-emphasized law enforcement, having more of an exposure to some of those more florid personality disorders, then, then that's, that's a sad loss because, you know, you don't have to be, we're not going to hold you responsible for appropriate diagnosis. But in particular, when you talk about someone with antisocial personality disorder or uh, borderline personality disorder, understanding that sort of set of behaviors is is going to be helpful for law enforcement. So I hope that that doesn't get completely. There's still a basic uh, understanding that goes on uh, in in the training, but not as much emphasis as I used to see, where it was almost like um, they didn't want the the experts to come out. Um, not that they didn't want, but maybe they didn't know at the time. Um, I've been doing it for you know like twenty over twenty three years, so a lot has changed for the better, and and um, um, that's one of the things that I saw as a difference. Yeah, I mean. There's definitely a whole set of ethical issues that I think underlies it as well when you're talking about not developing therapeutic relationships. Um, There's even things that we have to consider even just consulting. I need to make sure I'm not creating a therapeutic relationship with the subject's girlfriend who shows up on the scene or promising her that everything's going to be okay. Exactly. Exactly. it, I, I think, you know, going back to what you were saying, Scott, there is a lot of liability. And if someone ends up getting harmed because of this, can we easily sort of put that under any sort of ethics and guide guidelines that we have under our codes 
that we have violated in some way. Um, and there's several situations that maybe a tactical team, a SWAT team, they'll make a decision that maybe we're not good with because it's going to cause some harm somewhere. And we might have to step away and say, I'm just the consultant. This is what I'm saying and advising, but I have to disengage a little bit at this point because you guys want to, you know, put the five-year-old on the phone to say, hey, daddy, please come out and promising that, you know, everything's going to be okay when what, what potential harm and damage can be done if it doesn't turn out okay. So a lot. A lot That's a great example. Ethically. That's a great example. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think another uh, uh, thing that we use our, our clinicians for is, is some, you know, lately we've been walking away from certain instances where there's no crime. Right. Uh, we do our best to talk somebody out who uh, is, at, you know, made suicidal statements or, or things like that. And, you know, but, you know, law enforcement, we used to say, oh, if there's a gun involved, we're going to go in and, and we're going to, but they, in many cases, were killing people to prevent them from killing themselves. We showed them, you know, so uh, uh, now if we're going to disengage as, as an entire law enforcement, you know, profession from this one, you know, particular incident, we don't just walk away uh, cold. We, we will give any family members uh, the access or, or information for resources of what happens next. Uh, even if the individual does uh, get taken into custody. A lot of times they're only good for a 72 hour hold. And then we all know, uh, maybe even less than that, they'll be back right back out. Uh, and there's no aftercare uh, with law enforcement. It's like, okay, ne on to the next call. See you guys at the next one. And um, there's not a lot of follow-up. Uh, and that's where uh, the uh, DMH or other mental health uh, professionals can really, really help by giving the family uh, a place to turn to when, when, you know, the, the crisis at hand is, is over and they've got to uh, deal with what happens next. Yep. That's, that's exactly what Scott does in his position, which is just, you know, it's, it's, I think, who are we talking to Scott that they were talking about um, or asking about how long that's been going on. Oh, I think it was some other, the interview we did with Three Men in a Mystery. They were like, wow, that sounds pro so progressive for your agency. It's been going and on for a decade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it is in, in a lot of ways of just how do we really tackle this problem of people with mental health issues coming in and out of the criminal justice system when all they need is, you know, maybe a few more resources or follow up by mental health. So, But, you know, building on what, Harry was talking about earlier that disengagement from a barricade when there's no weapon involved. I can't even tell you how that raises my blood pressure because I get the referral on my desk and I'm, you know, I have to figure out what can I do here? You know, this is a, is this person mentally ill? Is this person, you know, uh, basically mentally ill because of chronic uh, continuous drug use? Are there weapons in there that we don't know about? It's yeah, it's, I mean, I, I get we don't want to kill people in order to keep them from killing themselves, and that, that would be a very bad thing. But it's, it's made things complex in a way that I think was unavoidable. But, you know, we do our best. Right. A lot of so what we that... do is, um, just real quick, a lot of what we do, unfortunately, uh, for good or bad, is, is driven by litigation. Uh, and I, I spent those years as a, a civil litigation investigator, and um, it has shaped uh, a lot of things that law enforcement does uh, for better or for worse. And uh, I think that that entire walk away type um, 
structure uh, developed out of that. And it's, it's unfortunate, but it's, you, you kind of figure out why, why they do that. Definitely. So the majority of situations in which a negotiating team would be called to are situations in which there is a lone barricaded suspect somebody probably with a weapon that doesn't want to leave and has likely committed a crime. That's why the police are there. Um, or a suicidal subject that we're trying to prevent that person from dying by suicide. It's pretty rare for there to be a hostage situation, right, Harry? In my uh, over 400 uh, responses that I've had in my, my career, I believe three or four true hostage situations that we've had. There was a bank robbery, a uh, restore uh, robbery, and a couple others, but it is, it is very rare. It's kind of cool to say, hey, I'm a hostage negotiator, but you rarely, uh, you rarely negotiate those type of, of uh, situations. Uh, I think there's, um, when there's another person other than the main suspect who's in a location, the the fallback for most of the untrained is to say, oh, it's a hostage, but it has everything to do with how the subject views that person. Are they a tool to, to uh, achieve some means? Um, are they a shield to prevent the police from coming in? Or are there some other, uh, uh, maybe an emotional background, maybe they're a, an, an estranged relationship or, or something, and those are more dangerous than a hostage situation. Um, we all, uh, you know, hostage situations are rare, uh, but kind of the, the quintessential uh, situation that you think of is a bank robbery. Uh, and uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, my team handled a bank robbery where it was uh, pretty much what you would think it would be. Uh, a person goes into the bank, uh, puts a, uh, a note uh, to, uh, you know, I have a gun, give me the money. Uh, to the teller and uh, the hostage situation uh, goes from there. Uh, luckily at this particular bank, there were no other customers inside. It was early in the uh, in their business day uh, and it turned into an eight hour uh, situation. There were nine employees inside and, and as the day went on, uh, the nine turned into seven, turned into six, five and, and on down and then we were dealing with a solo barricade. Uh, but everything that dealt up to that point uh, which was about maybe six hours into it was was a true hostage situation. Wow! So the FBI didn't, um, you know, swoop in and take that over from you. That's another thing I see from uh, movies and TV. Uh, the FBI uh, will um, uh, generally what they do is they offer resources and uh, they offer their hostage rescue team at at, uh, at that incident and uh, investigative resources. And uh, in the end, when the uh, suspect was um, was talked out, when he surrendered, uh, they actually took him into custody. But as far as the actual handling of the negotiation, that was all um, our agency uh, did, did a, if I do say so myself, fantastic job of it. Um, we had another incident at a, a, a pretty major uh, jewelry store. Uh, and, um, this was another one where just by luck or happenstance, uh, the only, not that it's, it's a good thing that uh, you have a hostage, but, uh, all the hostages were employees, uh, and, uh, two, uh, suspects. Um, and it was one of these, uh, uh, one of these jewelry stores where you, there's a double door 
and you have to be kind of buzzed in through the second door. And um, the um, I, I believe, if my memory serves, the, the guys were wearing like clown makeup and they actually were buzzed in through the door, which, you know, the <laughs> lesson from that is don't be so complacent that you don't just, without even looking, hit the button. Because um, clowns uh, are creepy, right? <laughs> that's right. I, I heard your episode. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that turned into a, a, about a 16 hour, uh, 16 or 18 hour Wow. Um, siege. And uh, in the end, that one, as we've seen in, in movies as well, um, these suspects uh, went, wouldn't come out. They feared that they were going to get shot by the SWAT team and they came out with several of the hostages. Or if I believe, if I remember right, they were surrounded by the hostages. Um, and um, there was a little, in all the incidents I handled, this speaks to your piece that you did at the uh, training, Shiloh. Uh, there was a little bit of Stockholm. Uh, that that uh, came in. It was uh, uh, a lot of hostility toward law enforcement from from the hostages, and and uh, a lot of um, kind of defending. You know, they're treat they're nice guys. You know, just give them what they want, and we can all go home. So, uh, a little bit of Stockholm there. Interesting, interesting. Well, so let's talk about our first movie on our list, which is Hostage. Um, I love a good Bruce Willis movie. But man, this one was a little rough. <laughs> so, yeah. so he, okay, like I feel like I could, I definitely have the formula down for hostage movies now that I've watched like five in the last few days. <laughs> First, it's either Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis, Samuel Cl- Jackson, Sam Jackson, Clive what's his name or Gerald Butler. It's like those five guys. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to ever be around any of them and a bank. <laughs> I know. I know. Right. So of course, like with all of these, this opens with a very tense, you know, in the middle of a major hostage situation where the negotiator is like feet from the hostage taker and like entering some real (laughs) dangerous situation that would never happen. Usually like exchanging themselves for hostages or, you know, going rogue and like coming up with their own idea. Um, But he's an LAPD SWAT negotiator in this movie when it opens and it goes terribly wrong. um, And he literally has the blood on his hands of a child, which they do a really big close up of the blood. That was a rough scene. In case, in case you did not understand what they're trying to say. (laughs) Um, After that, he leaves the department and becomes the chief of a small town, um, small police agency up in Ventura County, where it's nice and quiet every single day. And of course, trouble is going to follow Bruce Willis, right? So yes, what is so, his line? This let, let's have this be uh, low crime Thursday or something like that, right? Something like that. <laughs> so in in this um, small town, a, a group of like young adults, teenagers, attempts to carjack this wealthy family at their home, and ends up taking the father and the teenage daughter and the I don't know eight nine year old son hostage when things turn sideways. Um, The twist to all this is that the father is dirty. He's like working for this entity, um, you know, whatever, funneling money for them. And he's supposed to be giving them like bank account numbers or something that night, but he gets taken hostage. So he can't. (laughs) Um, And so 
Bruce Willis ends up doing a little bit of negotiating at the beginning, and then quickly the sheriff's department takes it over. Um, but the big bad guys then take Bruce Willis's wife and daughter hostage and say, you got to go get in that house and get us the information. So there's like these two hostage situations going on. Um, it's very complex. No, yes. it's not. Um, so, but, <laughs> so yeah, no, no, no. So how would you critique this? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I think in the very, so the very first scene when he's still with LAPD, there is a psychologist on scene, but that person does nothing. <laughs> he just kind of references him. He's just like a disheveled man in a suit. <laughs> yes. Sweating um, and unshaven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are no like real good depictions of psychologists. Um, you know, I think you subscribe to this in, in your podcast when you talk about movies that th there, there has to be, we all acknowledge that, that this is the entertainment world and there has to be some level of suspending disbelief. But, but when, so, I, you know, I'll look at something and go, oh, that, that might happen. But when they go way over the top like this, that's when they lose me and, and uh, where a lot of movies do. But um, I, there are a couple of good things about uh, what his character does, uh, but very few. So what did you see, Harry, that seemed to be decent representations of negotiations? Well, one of the, the things that we talk about very early on in negotiator training is tone. Uh, and uh, when he's talking in, in that first scene, uh, when he's with LAPD and he's talking to um, this you know, suspect who's, who's very agitated, his tone is very calm. Uh, his his uh, speech pattern is slow and, and low. And that's what we want. We want to do that and hopefully to bring a person who's experiencing very high emotion to, to bring them down to our level. We don't want to yell back at them, uh, which sometimes happens with our first responders, you know, come out with your hands up, you know, drop the gun. It, you have to be by, by design, you have to be, uh, have a strong uh, voice, but with negotiations, we slow it down and we softened it uh, a little bit. Uh, very good uh, going forward to when uh, he's talking to the little boy in the house uh, really great about building rapport and they're talking about a video game. And, and that's a great example of how we try to make that connection. Even though he's talking to a hostage at that point, um, he does pretty good in there that, that it's the, um, the tossing the, uh, the whiteboard down that says no one dies today and running to the, to the front of the location, uh, yelling, shoot me, shoot me. Um, uh, I miss that day of training. I don't think we yeah. do that. Yeah, not one of his negotiations works out the way he wants it to. They all go to shit. Like, he, yeah, he talks to little boy great, but he's not so great with the hostage takers. Yeah, so. maybe because he doesn't have a coach. Hmm, that's mm. an... It, yeah, he's on his own. Exactly, exactly. Which is the number one criticism I have of every negotiator movie, uh, with a few, very few exceptions. Um, there, it is a negotiator who goes on at, at it alone. Right. Without so, backup. so a coach would be a, a secondary negotiator or the person that's jotting down some notes and pushing them, you know, coming up with ideas to help because it is very hard to sort of do two things at once, concentrate on the person you're speaking with, but also think up, okay, where am I going with this? That was one of the things that was fascinating to me about the training because I had no clue going in that there is a structure that can be utilized for this type of action and it involves the person who is actually you know the communicator 
then there's the coach organizer, and then there are other people who are in charge of gathering and collating and prioritizing information. And then it's slowly funneled through so that the person's not overwhelmed. That I thought was fascinating. Shiloh, you looked at like you have disbelief. Didn't you have what I did? Um, there were like no. four, four or five people on our team when we were doing it. I have disbelief because I almost shared my screen on Zoom right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, I think this is a really good opportunity to break for some sponsors and we'll be back in a moment. All right, we are back, everyone. Um, So we're going to move into talking about another very famous film, literally called The Negotiator. Uh, So this is from 1998. Samuel L. Jackson, Kevin Spacey, you guys probably um, recall this one. This was right around like Kevin Spacey 7, like prime. Just my 7 is one of my favorite movies ever. So I I definitely remember this era. Um, But the premise here is that Samuel L. Jackson is being framed for his partner's murder at work. And he finds out there's probably some people in his division that are dirty and involved. So he decides to take the people in the IA office hostage to find out who did this, who killed his partner and what the truth is. So I do that at work. I think, Um, I think I could get some questions answered if I did that at work. Would you ask for me to be your negotiator? Yes, but you'd have to (laughs) negotiate with Dee Dee. Oh, dear God. (laughs) Oh, I could do that. Um, So, yeah, he asked for a specific negotiator who works at a different division because then he won't be dirty, um, even though they don't know each other very well. And that's Kevin Spacey. So great action movie Um, takes place in Chicago. Thoughts? Anyone want to start off with just like thoughts about the movie in general? Do you know that this this is based on a on a, a real incident? No, that occurred in in Missouri. No, do so, tell. Uh, of course, the uh, the details were were tweaked. That's why I said inspired and not based. Um, there was a uh, an officer, uh, and I think it was St. Louis, uh, who um, there was an issue with corruption in the uh, the uh, organization that handled the police pensions, and there was a uh, a problem going on, and and an officer. Uh, took went and took hostages in the uh, in the business uh, in the the pension office I think it was and uh, asked for a specific negotiator who was retired from that same agency and uh, the agency contacted that who would be in the negotiator movie would be this the Kevin Spacey character uh, they contacted him he was not uh, in the same town but he was close enough that he could respond he offered to come help. And, uh, they said, no, no, thanks. We'll, we'll handle this on our own. Uh, and it, it ended up, um, resolving as, as best as you, you can. Manage. And, uh, that officer did, uh, did go to prison, uh, over it. Um, but it was, um, uh, pretty far from, from the, um, um, from the, the, the plot of the movie, but it was based on that or inspired by that incident. Well, that's really interesting. I I think, um, uh, gosh, I would love to know more about that. But um, yeah, there's a few things in here that I just love as a 
you know, watching a film that are really great. Of course, Samuel L. Jackson and Kevin Spacey are always awesome. Um, but it's it's really interesting to look at the different types of active listening school skills that are sort of used. Um, I just want to review, you know, kind of talk about active listening skills for a moment. Um, Scott and I have talked about this, and we did a little bit in our con men episode as well when we talked about... Um, you know, ways in which to kind of persuade people. And a lot of negotiating is about changing people's beliefs and attitudes in order to change their behavior. Hence the reason why it is so based in psychology. Um, And active listening skills can be a huge piece of that, which, you know, are things that we teach in basic, you know, counseling 101. Um, And like you were referring to earlier, Harry, like what cops use on the street every day. And Scott, what you're talking about therapeutically that we use in the therapy room with people. So whether or not we are um, paraphrasing something that they said to let them know we're hearing them and we're understanding them, um, or that we're trying to get them to say more. And a lot of times you're just trying to keep people talking when you're conducting a negotiation um, because ultimately at the end of this, you want to, time is on your side. So you want to bring someone's emotions down so that they can start thinking better and making more rational decisions. Any comments on that? Scott, you want to talk about like, you know, how cognitive functioning works when someone's emotionally dysregulated. Well, just building on what you said, that seems, I mean, that's sort of a basic in our clinical therapeutic training. You know, you do at the master's level, you do at the doctorate level. So it was really neat during the, the, uh, CNT training that I was part of to have that really emphasized by these negotiators like Harry, that you want to expand time as much as possible. And, slow things down because when you slow things down, the person on the other end actually has time to take a breath. So you're, what we're trying to do is we're modulating our tone and our frequency and we're using more of a calming, soothing, responsive voice rather than, you know, you don't want to match where they're going because that only escalates the situation. So you can do that. You can do that. We do that as parents. We do that as pet owners. We do that (laughs) as business people in meetings as we, you know, we modulate and regulate our tone in order to pull people into our rhythm of speaking where we can have more control. At least that's the way I've always conceptualized it. Anything additional, Harry, to add to that? Well, yeah, you you mentioned matching and uh, mirroring, which is one of the active listening skills. uh, And that is something um, that that we try to do at least verbally to uh, let them know that we're we're uh, uh, listening. Uh, but uh, you know, as far as when when they're agitated, you don't want to match match or mirror that. Um, earlier on, when we were talking about the different um, team members of a negotiation team and, and the 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 role of the coach uh, in the negotiator movie, in that that opening scene where Samuel Jackson's doing a negotiation, he's got his coach there. And it's almost like he's training him, but that's kind of the setup where you'll have somebody. We we never go it alone. We always have somebody there to uh, to help us out and um, uh, provide those kind of either either an idea of what to say if you run out of things to say, uh, or you know tr- what to try. Like if we're uh, if we're looking for those hooks, you know something that that means something to them. And if if 
the sus suspect has a, a daughter, that means a lot to them. You know, the, the coach might write, you know, uh, tell them that the, the, the daughter, um, you know, can't wait to see him later, you know, something like that, uh, where they would write him a note. And that's, that's going on in the beginning of the, uh, the negotiator movie. And then toward, you know, later on when Kevin Spacey comes in, that same character that, that who was the coach at the beginning, he's in the command post, but they don't really use him. He's just kind of standing there, uh, kind of like the exam example Shiloh gave in, in Hostage, where the psychologist is just standing there sweating in the corner. Um, he, he is there in the command post. Yeah, there's, um, and then of course, another example that is in the, the first scene of The Negotiator when, of course, Samuel L. Jackson goes into the apartment with the hostage taker and lets him hold him at gunpoint. But they start talking about being military vets and finding that similar thing to get that person talking. Um, but it's really interesting because it, military vets are actually the subject of quite a few either suicidal or barricade type situations with a lot of the mental illness that we are finding these days in these situations. Um, and I had one that actually I've been on the negotiation team for this person twice, um, almost to the month, um, a year apart where he found a, um, very tall bridge in Los Angeles to go stand on top of. And the the theme throughout this really had to do with his military history. And um, what we really wanted to do was kind of hone in on that it, because it's it was what he was talking about. And it speaks to this this idea of identity protection trap. And I don't like the word trap necessarily, but that's sort of what we call this tactic in which you are taking whatever or however they identify and wanting to protect that for them. And so this was a situation in which we could kind of take what he was saying and sort of using it against his idea of either jumping off this bridge or remaining up there and saying, look, you know, you served your country proudly. Um, you, this, this doesn't line up with what you're doing right now and you haven't committed a crime. So, you know, we can still have you come down, get you the help that you need and, and that will help resolve this. And, and so sort of protecting his identity and how he how he identifies and what's important to him is something um, that is very much a psychological tactic. There's another one called rationalization trap. Um, that's a little bit of a method of getting the person to sort of think the solution is their idea as well, which is always nice if if they can feel like they're a part of the decision-making process and rationalize that in their mind, um, then that can help de-escalate and resolve the situation as well. Um, but it was really interesting in the negotiator because the whole reason why he took these people hostage was because of this identity of him being a good, ethical, non-dirty cop. But so many people don't know what to think because they don't know, did he kill his partner? Did he not? You know, it's kind of set up to look that way. And so Kevin Spacey's job is to not know if he's innocent or guilty and come in and, and try to protect his identity to help negotiations. 
Right. Duty and honor are big themes when uh, negotiating with military personnel and uh, other police officers. And um, that's probably the one I fear uh, um, having to negotiate with another officer, um, especially those who've gone through some negotiation training, which uh, we've had we've had a handful of those. Um, but that's um, was the negotiator in your, your bridge jumper um, incident. Where, did they have military background? So the first time around, no, and we were able to get the individual down because we got the VA actually to agree to come out to the scene and and meet him right away. So we got a representative from the VA there. Second time around, um, he was, when he was up on top of the bridge, he was actually dressed in his entire um, Marine Corps blues and was streaming live on Facebook from the top of the bridge, which was just crazy and surreal. And I actually just did a quick Google search of the person's name and found that he was streaming live. So that was like my little contribution of the night of like, oh, I got a little bit more intel right here on my cell phone. Um, And people were incredibly encouraging. They were like, hey, I'm a vet too. Like you have so much to live for. And You mean people commenting on? Yes, yes. Which I was like, please don't let there be that troll that's like, you know, just do it. Yeah. 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 Um, People were like, you can come and stay at my house and like wonderful messages. Wow. That's great. But it also kind of was encouraging to him to keep up what he was doing because I think he was getting a little bit of the validation that he, he needed. Um, and maybe in a moment, Harry, you can talk about like expressive needs and like something along those lines. But, um, so the second time, because I was like, Oh, we know who this guy is. We did have a brand new negotiator who had never negotiated before, but he was a Marine and we put him on the phone. He did amazing and was able to talk this guy down again. So it it was, it was a really strong connection point because, you know, obviously something we did last time wasn't perfect because he went up again. And that's kind of the situation where you're like, oh, crap, here we go with a frequent flyer, unfortunately, is what we kind of refer to them as. But, you know, what can we do different or new this time? And that was really the thing was having someone to connect with him over that. Do you want to exp- help explain to our folks like expressive needs versus instrumental needs when, some, when a hostage taker or a, a barricaded subject is asking for something? Sure. Uh, You know, there's sometimes you don't know what the person wants and and it's part of the negotiation to to try and find out. Um, We're trying to deescalate their emotions and and get them to a point where we can have uh, a dialogue and and really find out what it is that that, uh, caused them to be where they're at. Some cases we know that uh, through the uh, intel gathering process, but uh, um, when those needs or those demands come up, um, they will generally fall into two categories, uh, either uh, expressive or instrumental. And instrumental are the kind of the concrete things that they want. And they usually start pretty grandiose where uh, a bank, like our bank robber, his demands were he wanted all the police to go across the street to a, a given location where he could see them. He wanted us to open up traffic, and then he was wanted to get into a car and leave with two hostages, and then when it was safe, he'd let them go. So very clear, uh, this is what I need, this is what I want. Uh, and a lot of times those are easily negotiated down to lesser items, like we'll send in sandwiches or, or something like that. In, in that bank robbery incident, um, he did not leave. Uh, with anyone. Uh, the only 
the time that he left was to surrender uh, and be taken into custody. Or in the uh, movies, they always want a helicopter. Right, helicopter, a, a fueled up jet. Jetliner, yeah. We can yeah. talk about Dog Day Afternoon later. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it's the important thing is to understand that we're not we're not judging those demands. They can be whatever you want. You know, in the podcast I did with Topher Grace, the demands were uh, 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 pretty interesting, but um, <laughs> it's just to understand what, you know, what it is that they want and just let them know that you understand what, what that is that, that they want. And then you communicate that to, uh, to command whether or not it's, it's even able to be fulfilled. The other version or the other type of, of, uh, demand or need that a subject might have is is an expressive need. It's not something concrete that you can put your finger on necessarily, but uh, they they want something to fulfill some type of emotional need or something that's they're in crisis mode and and they need this. And sometimes that's something we can provide uh, if it's just a, a an ear that is going to truly listen uh, through active listening skills and let them feel and understand through empathy that that we. Uh, are are there to to help them through the moment, um, but sometimes it's something we, we can't. We're you know like something like oh you know I, I want you to bring my my dead mother back or something like that, and that's obviously not something that that we could do. Um, but it can give but, you a lot of information of where their heads at. I think that absolutely. you know if it's information if it's informing, then you know obviously that's helping you, even though you can't do any of those things. Right. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the untrained, um, through no fault of their own, um, they will go leap towards uh, fulfilling those needs. Um, we um, dealt with a jumper uh, one year and uh, that the first responder came up and was giving them water and, and uh, you know, pretty much giving them all these things instead of saying, you know, maybe putting the water down just out of their reach. So they would have to come to the safe side of the bridge to, to get that. Um, and, um, so if you fulfill every need that, that comes up, um, there's not going to be, they're going to keep asking for more and more and not, there's not going to be any progress towards, towards the surrender. And, and, um, just a, a comment about the word surrender. That's not a word that we use with our, with our subjects. Yes, that's what we want them to do, but, um, that is often seen as a, uh, giving up, uh, and, and uh, not with dignity. Uh, so we'll try to select certain words. Um, uh, and, and I'm also fond of, you know, saying, you know, when you come out, and I mm-hmm. use when instead of if, uh, when we're in the early stages, uh, they may not be ready to discuss what we're looking for surrender, uh, but we'll get them to start thinking about it. Hey, I know you're not ready now, but when you come out, uh, we need you to come out the front door and make sure we, there's nothing in your hands, you know, cause we don't want uh, anything bad to happen to you. You're plant, you're planting a seed. Yeah, definitely. So Scott, I don't know. Are you muted? You muted yourself for a second. Yeah. I just, I, oh, okay. you're, you're planting a seed. I, I, and I was, we kind of do that in the therapeutic process as well as, you know, instead of using, closed end possibilities you keep the end open that there's a lot of things that could happen here and and you're you're kind of generating an expectation or a possibility that that is going that this is going to be resolved peacefully i think that's that's important for me to remember from this i think that's something i'll walk away from with this 
And it's a step towards, uh, it, I forgot what Shiloh called it, but where you, you get them to the point where they believe that this, this plan, uh, the, the eventual surrender was actually their idea. Right. Right. So there's, uh, I don't know who they consulted with for this film, but there's a lot of like, and I, I get it because there's two negotiators talking to each other, but there's a lot of this like, you know, well, this is in the manual and this is negotiation 101. There's actually a, a my favorite scene, which is probably the most memorable, is where they have kind of like a filler guy on the phone with Samuel L. Jackson. And he's telling him, you never say no. And then he's trying to trick him up and the guy says no. And then he pretends that he shot somebody and this poor guy is just like sweating and, you know, he's That's asking the guy him all who was these... his coach at the beginning. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so it, another thing that, that sort of happens in this film, which is interesting to talk about is Kevin Spacey, even towards the end, after they've built up a decent rapport, tries to bluff Samuel L. Jackson by bringing in a character that isn't actually who he is. And Samuel L. Jackson catches him in the lie because he has some background info on who this person is supposed to be. So, and I feel like they kind of gloss over the piece of like, we really try to never lie. And, you know, there might be a little subtle deception or smoothing over of things involved, but how do you feel about sort of that golden rule of not lying to subjects that's something that i it's it's a very much last resort type of thing um i don't even suggest it to command and, unless you really think that that it's first of all that you, you've got a good possibility of actually working uh and uh, you know shiloh you mentioned the, the term frequent flyer i mean that's that's the thing that we're we're guarding against not just this incident, but what's going to happen to the next one. Hey, the cops lied to me last time. I don't believe a word you're saying. And then it takes them that much longer to build rapport and establish credibility. Um, so we try not to do it. I, I, I know uh, in a handful of situations, again, over the, the 23 years, maybe four times that we've, we've done that. Uh, and one of them was um, uh, where there was a crime involved, but uh, this person needed to get some mental health care, and um, they the negotiator lied to them and said they weren't going to jail. Um, they were going to just go to a hospital. Um, one in particular that I was negotiating, uh, there was a guy, he actually sent us a picture. Um, he was he was despondent over a breakup of his marriage. Uh, the The soon-to-be ex-wife was at the command post, and all he wanted was he wanted us to let her come into the house and he wanted to talk to her. He, he, he said, yes, I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll go to the hospital, but I want to talk to her alone. He even sent us a picture on the phone with the shotgun in his mouth. Um, and, um, so, you know, at this point we were kind of at a, a standstill and command was considering walking away from this. There was, there was really, there was no crime. And what we ended up doing was telling him, look, yeah, she can come in there, but we're not going to let her in with with the weapons. If you come out and sit on the on the either the sidewalk or the porch, I can't remember what it is, let us go in and secure those weapons, then we'll let her in. Of course, he came out and um uh he, we took him into custody and and he went to uh for a 72-hour hold and to get some care. Um 
But that, again, you know, this wasn't a guy who'd ever been in trouble before, no law enforcement contact, but that sets up um, such, you know, bad, because how's he going to trust the next one? Um, so we, we right. try not to do it. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, heaven forbid you get caught in that lie somehow, and it's just going to take that current negotiation. It's just going to go to shit because now all that rapport you've built up is going to be gone. It's not impossible to recover from that, but it's pretty darn hard. Yeah. I also noticed in this film a couple of ways in which they sort of do what we call like playing hardball. One was pretty unlikely to ever happen where Samuel Jackson is calling and Kevin Spacey just keeps like hanging up on him. (laughs) You know, like being kind of pissy with him and just hanging up. Um, And I don't know, I would never hang up on Samuel Jackson, but um, especially not in his heightened state. (laughs) But also another one is where he tells him like, basically you're out of time. Like the SWAT team is about to come in. They've told me I've done all I can do. It's not good enough. And, and that's, that's more realistic of, Hey, look, like, they're telling me my job is done unless you come out right now. They're making their plans to come in. So so I, I thought that that part was pretty realistic, but it's kind of funny to compare the two like hardball situations there. Right. And, you know, the, the decision, you know, as far as, and we've used that before, that uh, they're, you know, we don't say, you know, my time is up. You know, we'll, we'll say, you know, they're only going to let me talk to you for so long. Uh, and the implication is, you know, or they're coming in, but you don't, you know, you try not to say that, but, you know, I'd be very cautious of that. And that's something that the team leaders will talk about, uh, of, of, is that type of ultimatum, if you want to call it, is, is that likely to lead to, um, the person committing self-harm or, uh, or, you know, violence against somebody else. Um, so it's, there's, you know, there's very few actual, you know, rules in the rule book that, that are followed to the letter. And, and there is no rule book that is to the letter because of things like that. Every situation is different. And um, you don't want to hang up on somebody, uh, even if it's a calculated move, um, without some serious thought to it. Even though in, in the movie, it was, uh, uh, it seems like it was, it was, he had a good reason for it, but it was pretty impulsive and right on the moment. Yeah. So with with our time that we have left, I want to talk about third party intermediaries. I knew I was going to screw that word up. Um, (laughs) TPI. Yeah, TPIs. um, But there's a couple of the negotiator. There's um, a scene where they use a TPI. Um, Dog Day Afternoon is a good example as well. Um, And then you suggest a movie called JCDV. it is literally Jean-Claude Van Damme's, or JCVD, yeah. His initials in the movie is about him playing himself. It's originally in French. It's from 2002. You can find it dubbed over, which is how I had to watch it. I prefer subtitles as well. But... You know, they made that into a Netflix series where he's playing <sighs> himself, but what we don't know is he's disguising himself as an action star when he really isn't a superhero or like a... <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, it was like, it's unwatchable. It's completely Who is advising so his weird. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, in this movie, he plays himself sort of coming home to Brussels and, you know, he's 47 years old or something like that. And he gets mixed up in this robbery that's going down at the post office. And all the people on the outside think he's the one that has 
committed this robbery because he is the last person seen going in. The cop that hears the shots kind of sees his face in the window and then the real robbers put him on the phone uh, to make the demands. So here the world's like, oh my God, Jean-Claude Van Damme is robbing a post office in Brussels. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty awful, but um, I watched it nonetheless. So <laughs> they do, he's estranged from his ex-wife and daughter, but it's really funny because they think they've kind of like scored in finding his mom and bringing her in to put her on the phone. But turns out he hasn't seen his mom since he was a child. Like he has zero relationship with her, but here she is crying. Like there's my baby, of course, because he's a big star. But the thing is that they put her on the phone live. And I think Perry, you and I would probably both have a problem with that, right? Definitely. Definitely. That's that's uh, another one of those last, uh, um, you know, last resort type things. Um, you're always going to have somebody that comes to the command post saying, I can talk him down. I can talk him out. You know, I've, he's been, he always listens to me. And then right. we, we don't know what the whole background is. Um, but that's... Um, uh, it, it's easier said than done, and it's rarely effective. Yeah, yeah. So the, the preferred method is to get as much background as possible, which is what I actually really like helping out on. The detectives on scene usually ask me to come with them to help sort of vet the backstory of the relationship between these two people. And then we don't have to put them on live because we can have them make a recorded tape. And what we'll do is we'll have them record a message Um we can do it a couple of times, you know, until they feel comfortable or they sort of get it right. And then we listen to make sure they're not saying anything that would be agitating or um, a little triggering. dig there. Yeah, triggering. So that that's a really interesting part about, I think, my piece in it. But we can make a record and it can be just as effective, especially you don't have this back and forth. The person is just saying their message and whether or not we play that over the phone or the loudspeaker, that can often be, again, another seed that's planted of, oh, what am I really doing here? Kind of that, that anchor or that hook of, man, other people are really being impacted by this and bringing that person out of their uh, really dysregulated state. And the great thing about them is you can you can do a second take or a third take if you have to. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard some that are really just to the tone. It's like this person doesn't care. Let's, you know, once again with feeling, right? Yeah. 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 Tell them to uh, play that up a little bit. You don't want it to be totally fake where the person's like, uh, this isn't impacting me at all, but you can do it with multiple people. You know, if mom and dad and sister are there, whoever, um, use one, see how effective it is. If you feel like you need to use more, um, I think it also goes to sort of being able to show the depths and the lengths that you went to on this type of situation of really trying everything when you have, you know, maybe a situation that doesn't resolve so well or that ends up having to have tactical intervention that it was is extra little mile that the negotiators went to try and have some sort of emotional connection with a TPI. We, uh, we handled an incident in 2013 where a police officer from a, uh, uh, another agency uh, that was neighboring us uh, got shot by a suspect and uh, led to a very long barricade. And uh, 
the uh, suspect during the negotiation, when we were offline with him, he would uh, was trying to contact family members, including his mother, um, who was elderly in, in a, a care facility, but mm. uh, she was brought to uh, the command post willingly. Uh, we did a, a, a third party recording, a TPR with her. And there's a moment, uh, it was the timing of playing the recording was brilliant because he was very agitated at that moment. Uh, he was upset with the fact that his communications with his attempted communications with his mother were being intercepted. And he uh, just had a lot that he wanted to discuss with her. And he realized at this point he was going to jail for a very long time. We play the recording and it was a complete change. It, it completely um, just de-escalated where he was at and calmed him down quite a bit. So they are very effective. What was? And, do you uh, remember in that particular situation, can you give us an idea of the content or what it was that the grandmother said in that message that was so impactful? Well, it was his mother, and, and I think he, she was just saying, um, you know, that that one of the things she said when you know when she started was, "You've always listened to me. Uh, you know, we're all here. We care about you. Um, we just need you to listen to what they're saying." And and he wanted to talk to her, and that was kind of the the carrot at the end of the stick. That when you come out, we guarantee you that we'll give you time with your mom. And she says, "I'm I'm here." They you know, I, I've been brought to the scene and as soon as you come out, I will talk to you, but it starts with you listening to them. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but I think what did it was, was her saying, you've always listened to me kind of like you've always been a good boy, even though he was a, a, uh, an old time gang member and, and had just shot a police officer. Um, but, uh, it was that, I guess the realization that she was there, uh, he wasn't getting the runaround and different information about where she was. Because at one point she called the negotiator a liar when he told him that that his mother was was at the scene. Oh wow! Now, of course, when he hears that, he's like, "We'll put her on the phone." You know, yeah. but we were trying to. We definitely had a a, a hard no by command uh, that we were not going to be putting her on the phone. So you know, for all the years you've been doing this, can you give us a perspective on the types of colleagues' personalities that you've had experience with? What qualities do you see in your peers that would immediately like ring a bell for you? Like this man or this woman has it. This is this is going to be a a person who's really going to get this. And on the opposite end, is there anything that you, would be an immediate red flag characterologically that you'd go, mm, yeah, this is not gonna, this is not a good candidate. Um, you froze there for a second. I, I saw your, a blur of your hand when you went like that, but oh, I, was my, I got your question. Yeah. So is it, who who's a good candidate versus who's a bad candidate? Well, you know, I, I think a lot of specialized assignments in law enforcement, we look for the, you know, person with a, a clean record and a, and a, you know, really, you know, very active. And, and I'm actually not looking for that. What I'm looking for when I'm bringing new team members on is life experience. You know, what, what is it, have they dealt with adversity in their, in their life? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And also, you know, family members have, do they have family members who have mental illness or are, have addiction? Um, there's plenty of cops out there, as you, you both know, who have addiction problems with alcohol and, and, and other things. And, and it's the stressors of the job. So how have they dealt with those, uh, you know, 
know, that adversity in their life and come out on the other end. It also is, is huge for empathy. Um, we teach uh, that, that giving empathy is something uh, that is important in active listening in, in the, the, the road to building rapport. But a lot of people have to kind of manufacture that empathy. If you've got that, um, uh, that background of, of real situations and adversity and, and have come out the other end, okay, you can really uh, be empathetic towards somebody. So that's that's one of the things that I look for. And, and um, when we're, um, you know, we mentioned veterans earlier, um, having a variety of uh, of experiences and life experience makes a good team. Um, we've got a, a guy who was uh, military. Um, he was uh, um, nearly lost his life uh, when he was deployed in um, either Afghanistan or Iraq to to an IED. Uh, he suffers through uh, uh, PTSD, and um, did I say that right? I always get the post-traumatic yeah, PTSD, yeah. and and um, uh, and he can truly be empathetic. He's great with gang members, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily put him on with with a, a suicidal person who didn't have some of those experiences. Um, but there's other people on the team. We mentioned Jeff before. Uh, he volunteers on the suicide lines uh, once a week. Um, phenomenal negotiator, great uh, tone. He does have military experiences as well. Um, but it's kind of like uh, the old Mission Impossible series where at the beginning of, of each episode, Peter Graves would you know, figure out what the mission was, and then he'd go through and select what what you know, people to put on the team. Same thing with negotiation. That's a great example. And we're totally dating ourselves by knowing what that means. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the, the manila envelope with all the different photos. And, right. Yeah. That was the, awesome. Uh, the tape self-destructing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, probably the ones, you know, the other side of your question of, of what, you know, who I wouldn't uh, want um, is, is, is probably somebody who is um, the talker. Someone who is, uh, you know, uh, always has a story and, and is, is, you know, they, they, they're a good communicator, but it's, it's pretty much one way. I mean, they're, they're the ones. The one-upper. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, that's one of them. Um, or somebody who's not really um, kind of ha- wants to go with their own program and make their own rules in, in a negotiation. Uh, and I've worked with plenty of those where the, the team has decided to have a, a strategy and this is what we're going with. And they say, well, I, I want to try this thing. Um, and uh, some of that has to do with some of the things we've already talked about, about lying, you know, coming up with something and lying about it, um, switching negotiators. Um, we, I've had, uh, had to pull uh, a couple negotiators during, during negotiation because they were just going off on their own program. And, and um, um, you know, we are doing something by a strategy that's pretty well thought out. And um, it's successful because we stick with those strategies and we work on it. And if we have to go off in another direction, we do so as, uh, as part of a, a, a decision-making process that we, we discuss and we put into play. You know, I think peer support members would be great people to pull from if, you know, you look in sort of that cadre because they do tend to have a lot of life experience that has drawn them to doing peer support work and very much have, you know, sort of honed those skills as counselors. So um, in retirement, if you need consultants, you know, to help pick, 
we're here. <laughs> um, so I, I also wanted to touch on a, a classic film, Dog Day Afternoon from 1975, starring Al Pacino. Uh, this was also uh, heavily inspired by a real story that happened in August of 1972 in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, so the individual in this story, he and some buddies wanted to rob a bank and the story goes that it was to pay for the gender reassignment surgery of his, um, lover. And they actually had attempted to rob a couple of banks that day. The first one they went into, one of them dropped a shotgun and it went off and they got freaked out and fled and left. Um, they found another bank to go into and then they ran into like, someone's mom, like one of their friend's moms in there. And so they left and drove around for a while. They actually went and saw the Godfather film and then went to a third bank and go in, slip a note that says, this is an offer you can't refuse <laughs> to the bank manager. <laughs> so they really thought this out great, as as you could tell. But the movie does such a wonderful job at sort of depicting the tomfoolery aspect of it um as well wow. as just kind of the desperation from the the hostages point of view too it's kind of funny because the hostages are way more put together than the hostage takers in this situation this this was a real situation where it was a media circus let's see this is a little bit prior actually to stockholm syndrome and patty hearst so again sort of one of these first scenarios where there's like live media coverage and just the whole city is down there watching it happen live. Harry, you were talking about some examples of TPIs in this film that are also pretty ridiculous. Yeah, pretty much anybody who offered up, uh, uh, they, were, they were putting them on the negotiation in, in the movie. Um, you, you know, the the uh, great, great film, Al Pacino, wonderful uh, performances. Um, but everybody who had any connection with him was was able to. It, it's almost like they had a lineup of people and just here, let's try this person, let's try that person. Right. So the Chris Sarandon uh, character, who's who's the the uh, guy who's um, uh, he was getting the money for for the surgery, they put him on, and he's a, an absolute mess. Let's go back to the yes, hospital. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did he faint or swoon? It was very dramatic. Right. Right. It was. Um, his wife gets on and that completely goes goes awry um they bring his mother out uh and not only do they have her negotiate they actually have a like a contact visit uh outside and i don't know maybe in your research in the real situation um was the were the suspects coming out of the bank uh like like they were and, and just kind of interacting with everybody in the street um I don't know if they were interacting with the the TPIs. I know the story about the pizza is true. So they ordered pizzas and then paid for the pizza with the money from the bank. And then with the crowds who were around, they were throwing money bills out to the crowd during this whole thing. So um, they were they were very much being rooted on by by the crowd um, in this situation. But of course, they're getting money, so they were and all was for it, the free energy. Uh, was it recently after Attica? Yes, it was. It was. So they're, you know, screaming Attica. Um, and so this one ends truly and in the movie with a ruse. So the, the FBI does come in and eventually negotiate with them that they will take them in sort of this caravan to the airport where there will be a plane waiting for them. And there, I think 
I forget where they're going to fly to, um, somewhere in South America or something. And it, and they do actually go to the airfield and it's obviously, um, meant to be sort of this setup and his other partner that goes ends up getting shot and killed, but the, the main character, he ends up surviving and being taken into custody, um, so it's it's a very elaborate ruse. I mean, it, this was before true crisis or hostage negotiation teams were set up in New York, which is where it started. So, you know, they were kind of flying by the seat of the pants and, and the FBI actually followed New York's model. So they were second to sort of jump on this boat. But um, he, so he ended up going to prison. He only did five years, but he, the movie came out three years later and he demanded, he actually threatened a riot if the warden wouldn't let him watch it. <laughs> and eventually the the warden let him watch it in his cell by himself. And of course he had all these criticisms about like, like how that. it was done, but um, his, his lover ended up leaving him while he was in prison. So it was all for nothing. <laughs> But great crime film. doesn't pay. No, crime does not pay. Not at all. I, I read something interesting about uh, John Cazale, who played his his partner in there, and he was also in The Godfather mm-hmm. uh, with Pacino. I think he was in Deer Hunter. He's in some great movies, but uh, he criticizes one of the hostages in the movie about smoking. And right. uh, John Cazale died of lung cancer about three years after Dog Day Afternoon um, came out. So, Oh yeah. Cause he says specifically that he doesn't smoke cause he doesn't want to get the cancer. His body's wow. a temple. Yes. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. You know, another thing, uh, dog day afternoon is, is a good example of a bad introduction. Uh, when, um, was it Charles Durning? Is that who the, the, the detective sergeant yes. gets on the line? It's like, what are you doing asshole? You know, it's like, right. That's probably <laughs> not how you should introduce yourself to, uh, to a suspect holding hostages. Eh, he didn't know what to do. It was like the wild right. west. Then. Now, what are your thoughts on, on Stockholm in, in the movie? Cause uh, the, uh, the scene that sticks out to me is when um, I think the character that the bank teller Miriam is uh, doing like drills with the rifle and flipping the rifle around and, Right, right. Um, I I thought about that early on because they're they get pretty chatty and comfortable with them quite quickly. Um, and as as you know, Harry, from watching my presentation, and our listeners from hearing Scott and I drone on for two episodes about Stockholm, <laughs> um, you know, I I I don't want to label anything Stockholm syndrome anymore. Really, you know, right. I, I think it's it's individuals' unique way of dealing with trauma, um, and you know, if if these people are a little bit charismatic and if they're buying you pizza and letting you go out and do like little mini interviews with the media, that could be kind of exciting to someone. And especially if you're like, well, these guys don't even know what they're doing and they actually have never threatened us. So, um, I don't know. It's interesting in the movie to see those little clips though, of them kind of, you know, sharing cigarettes and things like that. Right. Did Scott, you see anything? me? I was on TV. Yeah, I know. I know. Did you have any other films, either of you that, kind of stick out that have good hostage uh, situations or barricades? You know, I, I, I wish we had time. I mean, we're, we're, this is all such fascinating information. One of the ones that's, that's older is Waco rules of engagement. And that was um, back from 1997. I think it was actually a TV movie 
but that's a situation, you know, that a, a real incident occurring that was kind of a, a watershed moment for these type of uh, interactions and it ended very badly. But, you know, maybe in the future we can come back and, and, and talk about some specific real life examples as well as the movie examples we've given. But these, I think these are all great examples. It's, um, I, th- I think it, one of the things we didn't really touch on is that a lot of this particular genre of movie about hostage negotiation, it's very testosterone driven. I mean, you can count on your hand the number of women I know. That, are, that are in the story. It's, it's pretty funny. It's like, oh, it's, they're all the moms or the wives. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> well, maybe we need to write a script. Um, there's a ton of like, you know, funny movies or TV shows that have depictions. And every time you go to a training, you know, someone's using a little clip of Brooklyn Nine-Nine or uh, the best other guys. In, best in show, the other guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's plenty out there. Um, maybe we'll we'll highlight some of those on our Facebook page gearing up for this episode. But anyway, Harry, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. And this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we met and that it worked out. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I hope, I hope we'll be able to have you again for a consultation on another episode. Love to. Sounds good. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us today on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye, folks. Stay safe.